week. All right, was that it? I think so. Okay, so the other day, uh, my son, Luke, he's four years old, and we were driving in the car, and he asked me if he could watch the Ninja Turtle show. Did y'all watch that as a kid? Yeah, I remember my brother watched it. Um, the only thing I remember is that they liked pizza, and there's like Raffaello, right? Um, so I, right? Isn't that one of them? Raphael? Okay, well, clearly I haven't watched Ninja Turtles. Um, so he asked me if he could watch it, and I told him, I was like, you know, I really don't know anything about it. Um, so maybe, but, but we'll see. I just need to look into it. And his little four-year-old response was like, no, mama, it's fine. They're just killing the bad guys, so it's good. It's fine. I was like, okay, sure. Um, but it, it's still killing, right? So, like, there's still some gray area there. I mean, like, how, how do we get to this point in our society where, like, it's fine, but they're killing those guys, right? And so then my mind, like, spiraled to, like, how do we determine who is bad enough to be killed? Um, like, what do, how do you even define a bad guy? Like, who makes someone bad? And does God love bad people? I mean, like, surely he doesn't approve of murder, right? Like, he probably wasn't happy with Hitler, I would imagine. So what about, like, the smaller sins? Like, cheating or lying or stealing. What about them? Does God love them? So what kind of people does God love? And how far does his love extend? So I didn't share this thought process with my son, obviously, because it just would have, like, exploded his little brain. But the Pharisees, however, were asking themselves this very question of Jesus. What kind of person does he love? And because the thing is, they were bothered that Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. So, I mean, sinners, right? And they were people that just weren't following God's law. Like, they were doing their own thing. Tax collectors, they always tried to, like, scrape a little extra money off to themselves. So they were, you know, most of the time, they were pretty dishonest. So, like, these are the type of people Jesus was not only hanging out with, but he would eat with them, which culturally, that was the sign of, like, acceptance to them. And so not only did he just tolerate them, but he, like, created fellowship with them. Um, so is that the kind of person that God loves? So at one point in Jesus' ministry, um, he's surrounded by both types of people. We've got tax collectors over here, and, then, and they're like flocking to him, right? All of these people who are not living God's law, flocking to Jesus. And then we have the Pharisees and the scribes over here, and they're complaining and they're grumbling because how dare Jesus eat with those people? And so Jesus then breaks out into three parables back to back, and he aims it at the Pharisees and the scribes. And it's about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. So in Luke 15, he starts the first parable. In verse 3, he says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. So for these people, livestock was livelihood right? So his listeners understood that it would be important to them. They would be willing to leave all the other 99 sheep in their field to go out and find the one dumb sheep that strayed off into the wilderness and venture there. And it would be dangerous for them to go and get this one sheep back. But it was worth it to them because that sheep was valuable and important to them. 
And then if you skip to the next parable in verse 8, Jesus says, of what, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And then when she has found it, she calls together her friends, her neighbors, um, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. So again, she's putting a whole lot of effort into finding this one thing. Right? She's turning on the lights, she's sweeping the floors, she's scouring the house to find this one small coin. But now, coin here in Greek was drachma, which was equivalent to about a day's wage. So like a whole day of labor, that's how much they would get. And so, I mean, this isn't, this isn't like us losing one penny and you're like, well, good, now it's less junk in my wallet, right? Because it was a penny. No, this was very important. This was also her livelihood. So it was precious and valuable. It was her way of living. So the amount of effort that these people put into finding their things was a lot, right? So because we might wonder when we think of it, you think, was it really worth that effort? That was a lot of work for that one thing. Was it really that valuable? But for something that may have seemed insignificant for us, I mean, they were desperate to get it back, so clearly it was important to them. So now at the end of both parables, when they each have found their lost item, they have the same response, and that is joy. I mean, they rejoice. They bring their friends over. They celebrate. They throw a party. Like, they are so happy that this very important thing has now been found. Now, after this, Jesus begins his third parable about a lost son. So in verse 11, he says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. So this son asks for his inheritance. So this isn't like you go into your parents saying, like, will you pay for my college so I can, like, go and live and do this thing. This is... This is like outrageous that he would ask for this. So he's already going to inherit from his father, right? Like according to the law, like usually the older son gets a double portion and then you divide it among your children, right? So there's two sons. So the older son is going to get two thirds of the property or two thirds of the inheritance. And then the younger son is supposed to get one third. So he's not asking for more than he's supposed to get. But here's the thing. They weren't supposed to get it until the dad passed away. So Basically, what he is saying is, I'm done with you. I'm cutting ties. I'm ready to move on and do my own thing as if you were dead. I mean, he's basically wishing his dad was dead. Um, So, I mean, that's harsh. And then if you consider the Middle Eastern culture that they would have lived in, I mean, it was very patriarchal and very, like, honor and respect. And so a father, if this had happened, he probably would have, like, thrown him out of the house and disinherited him altogether for the amount of disrespect that he is showing here. But we don't see that. The father actually does it. He divides the property and he gives it to the son. Now, this isn't like dollar bills like we might think of, right? Like the property was, um, it, it mostly involved property was their inheritance. So that's land, house, livestock, fields for farming. So, I mean, he actually had to physically sell quite a bit of property so he could give his son one-third of it. Um, And it probably brought a lot of shame to his family as well. So we don't know why the son wants to break ties. I mean, 
the story doesn't tell us. Maybe he got tired of the rules. Maybe he felt like his father was too strict. Maybe he got bored of life on the farm. Maybe he thought it just looked so much better out there than this simple life that I have right here. Maybe he was just questioning his father's goodness. But there can be so many different reasons. But I hope that you see the connection to ourselves. Because have you ever found yourself in a situation where you are struggling to trust in God's goodness or his promises or his truth? And thinking maybe the way everyone else is living over there, it doesn't look so bad. Like it, it kind of looks fun. Maybe God's rules are too strict. I mean, is, are there, is there freedom living within the rules or outside the rules? Well, let's see what happens to the son. So in verse 13, he took a journey to the far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Oh man, that's like an all-time low right there, right? Like he ran out of money, he spent it on one pleasure after another, one more thing to fill that void that you just think is going to satisfy you. When you run out, you look for the next thing to fill that void, the next party, the next relationship, the next phone, the next show, whatever it is. And so he runs out of his ability to get the next thing because he's spent everything and then he's forced to work at a pig farm feeding the pigs. I mean, that shows you how far he's fallen because in the Jewish religion, if you, if you touch a pig, that's an unclean animal, so you're ritually unclean. So now he is in this far country. Like Jewish, the Jewish country would have never had a pig farm. So he is now consistently ritually unclean, and um, he's totally lost his cultural and religious identity. So it says that he was so starving, he wished he could eat the pig food. But he didn't even get that. So sometimes we need to reach a state of desperation so we can recognize our need for a Savior. When everything is stripped away and you have nothing left, then you can see what is meaningless and what actually holds value in our life. So when we spend our days filled with distractions, I think it, it can be easy for us to think like, oh, I got this on my own. Like, I, maybe I, I probably know what's best for me. But what happens when those things are taken away? When your friends leave or betray you or when you're no longer the best at your sport or when you realize partying really does cause so much harm to you and your friends? What happens then? Whatever it is that you turn to, did it really turn out like you thought it would? Did it live up to everything you thought it would? You know, it wasn't until this guy experienced this all-time low and just saw for himself how meaningless living a life pursuing this desire is until he realized that it just wouldn't satisfy him. It just wasn't as great as he thought it would be. And so then he finally saw how great he had it with his father, that there was actually freedom and joy and fullness from living under his father. Because God's design for our life is actually beautiful and right and meant to give us this full life with purpose. So now there's actually a lot of hope in this story. 
Because God doesn't desire for us to go down these paths, right? Like sometimes he gives us up to them when it's clear that we have made that choice. And he allows us to go through these hard times when, when you have the opportunity to come out on the other side with the stronger and deeper faith and a deeper trust in his goodness. So let's see what the father says when the son comes back. Because it says the son finally wakes up. So it actually says in verse 17, he came to himself. So he woke up and he realizes this desperate state that he is in and just how far he's fallen. And then he remembers, my father's servants had it even better than I do. And they actually had food to eat. Um, So he makes a plan. He's going to go back and ask his father's forgiveness and then ask to be a hired servant because he knows, he's like, there's no chance that I'm getting back in the family the way that I've treated him. But maybe I can work for him and then I can maybe start paying off the debt. So that's his plan. So he goes to his father and this is what happens in verse 20. He rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So his father was, saw him from way off, like almost like he was standing there every day looking and seeing if the son would come back. And so he sees him and he starts running. Fathers did not run back then. Kids ran. Fathers did not run. But this father ran and embraced him. And so he won't even let his son give his I'm sorry speech, right? Like he cuts him off and rejoices and says, let's celebrate because you are back and you are mine. I mean, he doesn't make him earn his way back in. He doesn't make him prove his love. His father has already forgiven him, even though he has every right to be skeptical, right? But it doesn't matter because he has loved him the same ever, ever since. So his response is kind of over the top. Right? Like he gives his son a robe, a ring, and sandals. Those are all things that give honor and status to someone. And then he orders the fattened calf for dinner. So meat in general was a delicacy. Like they only got the meat out if there was like a really big party or a special occasion. And so not only that, but he orders the, the most expensive cut of meat. And so he goes all out. I mean, this would be like your parents throwing you a party and like hiring, you know, like a private jet and hiring your favorite band to come play for just you and your friend. I mean, it's like over the top extravagant. Like he is going all out. So we see this lavish and somewhat reckless love of the father for his son. In each of these parables, there is this rejoicing that happens when the thing that was lost has been found the sheep, the coin, and the son. In verse 7, after the first parable, Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. At the end of the second parable, in verse 10, he says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then now we're seeing rejoicing again when the father finally gets the son back. So God is overjoyed when someone repents and comes back to him. Someone who was lost has been found. So this summer at Impact, 
um, I decided to take both of my kids tubing on the river. Um, my husband, with work every year, like he's not able to come to impact camp, so it's just me and the kids. So I asked him beforehand, I was like, do you think I should take Riley and Luke on the river? And if you know my kids, the answer should be no because my kids are not like the sweet, docile little things that stay right here, they're too shy. No, they think they own the place. And so Ben was like, that sounds like it would be really stressful on you. I probably wouldn't take them. Well, I didn't listen to him, because that's what a good wife does, right? So I was like, no, it's fine. I'm going to take them on the river. Um, I had students to help me, and so it was fine um, until the end. Uh, Riley and I got separated um, she was with the seventh grade girls um, who were being super responsible and like I totally trusted them. Um, but at the very end, I don't know, they were just faster. So they got to the end before I did. And in my mind, I was like, okay, it's okay. Like I can kind of see it over there. Like it'll be fine. Um, I know there's no rapids from here to there. It'll be fine. So I get there to the stairs and apparently they have ushered all of them onto the bus to Newcomb. Um, and so I panic because I was like, okay, well, hopefully Riley is with them. Hopefully she didn't like keep floating down the river or I don't know, do her Riley thing and just like run off. And then like, there's a street with all the cars. And then did the bus make it to Newcomb? I mean, these are, this is what happens when you're a mom, like your brain, you just, there's so many scenarios that could go wrong. So I'm like panicking, right? I have never really prayed so hard. Um, there's only been a few times in my life, like I'm on the bus, like, Lord, please, like, make, let her be at Newcomb. I mean, it was only like 15 minutes, but praise the Lord when I got to Newcomb, sweet Kendall Tebow was right there holding Riley's hand, and I was like, thank you so much. I mean, I didn't cry, but I almost did, um, and it was fine. Like, I knew it was probably fine, but like, there was about 15, 20 minutes of like, my daughter could be down the river. I have no idea. I have no idea where she is. So like that moment of being reunited with Riley, oh my goodness, the relief, the joy. I mean, I was just like, oh, like I could finally relax. But like think about when something valuable to you gets lost, even if it's just like money or wallet or your phone, like something really important to you, or in my case, my daughter. Um, when you get reunited with them and you finally find them because you think they were lost, I mean, the relief and the joy that you feel over that is just incredible. So think about how much more does God rejoice when someone who was made in his image was dead to sin, was rejecting his salvation, and has now come back to him and is now called a son and daughter of God who gets to live with him for all eternity and escape that judgment. I mean, think of how much rejoicing he might have. So when you consider these parables, Jesus is driving the home, home the point of God's unfathomable love for his people. Because God's love is a reckless love. And he will go to any length to rescue you, even sending his own son to die for you. Jesus was the rescue mission. So what is God's love like? It's like a shepherd who will go to any length to bring you home. Or it's like a father who is waiting there with open arms, waiting for you to come back no matter how far you have strayed. No matter how badly you think you've messed up, there is no sin that is a match for his grace. God doesn't sit there and just tally up our mistakes, right? Like he doesn't just like keep adding it up and then when it reaches this fill line, he's like, oh, we're done. Like you've had too many chances, you're out. No, 
In, in fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, it says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We did nothing, and Jesus did everything for us. He, God spared no expense to bring us back to himself. So this isn't the end of the story. I'm kind of like leaving it off at a cliffhanger because next week we get to look at the older son and the older son's response. And we're going to see that he has the same response, this like indignant righteousness that the Pharisees have, and that's anger. Anger at how can someone like him get back in the family? How could you forgive that guy? But it is a little unbelievable, right? Like the way that the younger son has treated his dad, not only is he allowed back in the family, but he is celebrated and like all sins completely forgotten. I mean, there is like this giant party with all the money thrown into it before he can get his words, I'm sorry, out. Now this would have been tense for the Pharisees listening to this because honestly, the ones who are truly lost are the ones who don't even see their need to be saved. And Jesus is making it clear that his mercy and his compassion is waiting for those who do see their need, who do repent, who do turn back to him. The word repent um, means like to change your mind and to physically like turn the opposite direction and go the opposite way. You probably heard this story called the prodigal God, right? Like it's a famous story. But it would be better to call this story the lost sons because this is just as much about the older son than it is the younger son. And we'll see that next week. But it is also even more about the father. The word prodigal means reckless, recklessly extravagant. So it means you spend everything you have until there's nothing left. So not only did the son do this when he took that money, right? But we see the father do the same. Like he spared no expense when his son came back and he was kind of reckless in his acceptance and his relationship with his son and his celebration. So in the same way, God has shown us this extravagant love when he sent his son to pay the price for our sins so that we could be declared righteous. So this is a beautiful story of God's reckless love for us that no matter how far we stray, he will gladly welcome us back. He has spared nothing, not even his own son, to bring us back into his family and call us sons and daughters. Have you ever felt that tension of just thinking, like, that thing that I did, I just can't get over it. Like, there's nothing I can do to make up for it. I can't be good enough to make up for it. Like, I'm probably just a lost cause. Like, I did, I did too much for God. But we see here this story shows this extravagant love that God has already given and already wiped our slate clean before and after we did it. We have only to repent and turn and set our focus on him who will refine us and redeem us and give us wisdom and perseverance to move past the struggles or past the temptations or past our mistakes. So if you struggle with God's love, consider just how much he has gone through to bring you home. There is this freedom of living within God's perfect design because he has rescued us from the slavery to sin, this bondage, this mess that we get into, the endless spiral of, of hopeless despair, the things that just won't satisfy. 
And there is joy and freedom in embracing this life that God has called us to. So his desire for us is to experience this beautiful fellowship with him. And he's waiting with open arms. And any times we have doubt or we turn our back on him, he's still there, patiently waiting for us to open our eyes to his goodness. So who does God love? He loves the lost, which is all of us. Mike McKinley says this, the good news of God's love is not that he loves the righteous, for there are no such people. The good news is that he is merciful. His forgiving and restoring love extends to every single person who repents. So we just need to recognize just how much we need him, just how great he is, just how, how merciful he is, and just how much he has done for us. All right, I'm going to pray. Lord, we... We praise you so much. Um, Lord, we, we thank you for having this reckless love for us, God, that you, you know no limits. Lord, and, and you understand that we'll be tempted, we'll, we'll mess up, we'll make mistakes, Lord, we'll turn our back on you, but, it, but you're still there, and your love is constant. God, I pray that we can see your goodness and trust in your truth, even when it seems like we may know better. I pray that we can trust that, that you are the ultimate, God. Ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So...